Hey, hey, and welcome to a special best of edition of The Ben Shapiro Show. While we're in the holiday week, we'd like to bring you guys some of the terrific content over on The Ben Shapiro YouTube channel. Some things you maybe haven't seen before if you normally enjoy the show exclusively on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So today, I'm going to share some videos with you. From addressing the alleged voter fraud video from Georgia, to James O'Keefe listening in on CNN calls, to the Honorable Congresswoman AOC D-Twitch combating capitalism by releasing $58 sweatshirts. I hope you enjoy, and also I hope you'll subscribe over at youtube.com slash Ben Shapiro for even more exciting videos we've got planned for 2021. Without further ado, let's get into our first video. So if you missed it last week, there was this shocking video. It appeared from Fulton County, Georgia. It appeared to show ballot workers taking boxes of previously uncounted ballots out from beneath the table and then counting them after the room had been cleared of election observers. The voice narrating that video was Jackie Deason, lawyer and host of The Jackie Daly Show. Jackie joins us today to talk about that tape and, more importantly, the most damning claims in the election fraud lawsuit currently happening in Georgia right now. Jackie, thanks so much for joining the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Ben. Good to see you. So why don't we start with sort of your recap of what exactly that tape was showing, because I don't want to mischaracterize it. Right. So what I did was narrate the tape for the Georgia State Legislature, specifically the Senate, showing what was happening at State Farm Arena, specifically between 10 p.m. and 1 a.m. on election night. We looked there because we had affidavits from witnesses who were Republican observers who said there was an announcement that went out to the press, to the, the room, saying that counting was done for the night. At 10.30, everyone came back at 8.30. So everyone left. Our observers left. Frankly, they have no legal right to be present if there's no counting going on. They can't stand guard over the ballots all night, legally, so they left. But then they received a press tip that, in fact, counting had continued after they left. So they went back to State Farm Arena when they learned this around 1 o'clock in the morning. And sure enough, the security guard, who wouldn't let them in at first, but finally, after some negotiation, took them upstairs, um, said, yeah, the people just left like five minutes ago. So we went to the tape, and sure enough, the tape confirmed exactly what they told us. So we, we told the legislature. Okay, so uh, the response from the Georgia Secretary of State, Gabriel Sterling, and, and his office, Sterling, he, he suggested that while it appears that it was true that perhaps people were told to leave, the, there's controversy over this from, from state election officials, they, they originally said, no, nobody was told to leave. Then they said, well, maybe people were told to leave, but then there was a state election monitor who was present the whole time. Uh, his statement is that the real question is about the ballots themselves. So in the video, it appears that there are these boxes of ballots that are underneath the table. Uh, you had said suitcases in the narration. They said it was cases. It doesn't really matter. Uh, there are these boxes of ballots. Uh, according to Sterling, there were monitors and observers who were there when these ballots were originally put into the boxes and everybody knew the ballots were in the boxes and everything is on tape anyway. So is the allegation that these ballots that were then processed were fraudulent? Uh, what, what's the actual allegation about the, the processing of the ballots that were under the table in the boxes? The truth is no one knows what those ballots were because even when our observers were there and the press were there, they were kept back so far, like 40 to 100 feet away, they could not possibly see what those ballots were. This was a continuing complaint of the Republican Party all the way through early voting, all the way through election day in counties across Georgia. We had the affidavits. Our observers were not permitted to even be where they could see what was going on. Some of the scanners in the room were behind a wall. They didn't even know they were there until the spokesperson told them that evening. So the truth is, they could have all been marked for Biden. Our observers with, without binoculars and without moving their angle wouldn't know the difference. 
So it's kind of a worthless, meaningless point because we've been complaining about this all along. Um, perhaps, yes, the ballots were there uh, or packed in front of them, but to us that holds no meaning. It doesn't change the fact they broke the law. They cannot count the ballots without the public being permitted to view the proceedings under Georgia law. You may not mislead the observers in the press into leaving, and by the way, CNN, ABC, NBC, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that the spokesperson for the Elections Department told the press that they were sending everyone home or stopping counting at 10.30 that night. So for the Secretary of State to claim that no one was told they were going to stop counting is just false. And even a simple Google search would rebut that also. They said their monitor was there all the time. The monitor says in a fact check story that in fact he didn't get there until 11.52 p.m. That's about an hour and a half after they announced for everyone to leave. So he says himself he was not there. Also, about 20 minutes after he gets there, a deputy chief investigative officer arrives from the Secretary of State's office. Why? Why would you make an announcement to the press or stop and counting at 1030 and then send your deputy chief investigative officer to State Farm Marina after midnight? I think it's because the monitor called him, but we don't know that yet. But all of that is suspicious. And the Secretary of State's waving his hands like nothing to see here. That's like, you know, fact checking with him is like uh, asking him to grade his own work. So I mean, what? Go ahead. Would there be any way to, to verify the falsity or fraud of the ballots at this point? I mean, it, it sounds as though it's almost unfalsifiable, given the fact that, that the signatures, in my understanding, is in Georgia, the signatures are separated from the ballots for purposes of anonymity, <laughs> typically. Uh, and now the signatures have been separated from the ballots, and you can't match them back up with the ballots they were with. So unless the numbers didn't match, unless there were fewer signatures than ballots, for example, then you'd be able to tell. But if the, if the numbers are the same, then the, is the allegation that there could have been substitution, or is that... Or that, the, or that the original ballots as submitted uh, were not legit in the signature verification? We have several allegations that hit all points of that. But what I would say to you is, under Georgia law, what the president has to show is not that those people would have voted for him uh, had they been real ballots or had they been counted fairly. He only has to show that there were illegally counted ballots that are beyond the margin of victory. If we cannot prove, if this wasn't done consistent with law, with our observers observing or the state monitor observing, we cannot prove that those were legal ballots. They are in question. So it's sufficient to overturn the election. The, the allegations that, that are made about this particular tape, I know that there is one outstanding Georgia lawsuit. Uh, it was originally filed last week, uh, late Friday, not the Kraken Sydney Powell lawsuit, which was dismissed, uh, but the, the one that was, that was filed on Friday um, by uh, Rudy Giuliani and the actual Trump legal team. Uh, they had forgotten to pay some sort of filing fee. They refiled it. Uh, as of as of yesterday, and it's now under consideration. Is all of this included in that lawsuit? Um, all of it is included in the suit. And, and actually, the suit was going forward before we had the video um, based on very cut and dried points, such as about 2,500 felons voted, about 66,000 underage people voted, about 5,000 voters voted who had left Georgia and registered in another state. Under Georgia law, that means you're automatically disqualified from voting. And so much more. <clears throat> I would say over 100,000 people are listed here who illegally voted, who should not have voted. And that's all the president has to show to either get a new election or to certify the current one.
So uh, have those votes actually been been tabulated, meaning that when we look at the final voter count that has been certified by the state of Georgia, uh, and they've now done, I believe, three recounts of the votes, the, the numbers that you're mentioning, those are included in that final voter count is the allegation? Correct. Okay, so yes. um, what, what is the state of Georgia's response to all of this? And what, what's the defense been? Because if you can name the voters who are voting fraudulently, and it should be pretty easy to substantiate people who are registered out of state voting in the election or people who are underage, but I mean, we know when people are born. Uh, so, so what is their response been? So far, they haven't responded because we just filed it Friday night. So let's see what happens. We'll find out soon because we'll have an expedited process because we have to. So what, what, what the is, circumstances. So what, what is the timeline on this particular lawsuit? Because uh, even folks who have been you know, fairly staunchly defensive of the Georgia electoral system, folks like Eric Erickson down in Georgia, uh, even he has said this is easily the, the most uh, well-predicated lawsuit that he has seen filed uh, at this point. And it is worthy of note that you know, the, the veracity of this lawsuit has nothing to do with whatever is going on in Pennsylvania or Arizona. Uh, and it may not even turn the election more broadly, given the fact that Trump would actually have to win Georgia and Arizona and Pennsylvania uh, in order to in order to win the election. So when we're talking about this lawsuit, we're just talking about proper ballots being counted and improper ballots not being counted. So everybody should be on the side of that. What is the path forward for the lawsuit? What's the timeline given the safe harbor provisions in law? I think it's difficult to say. The judge has the discretion to expedite the process, which we think is almost certain. Um, I'm told the Secretary of State has waived, <clears throat> excuse me, his five days that he has to respond. Uh, normally he gets five days automatically because he's the state. So I'm not sure what's going to happen here and how quickly it can move. It might be advantageous for a judge to sit still until the time is passed, the December 14 deadline. Even then, it's the uh, opinion of our lawyers, it's still alive. Um, we want to litigate to the truth no matter what, because the relief asked for in the petition is not just about the election. It's about forcing the Secretary of State to do his job and get all of these illegal people off the rolls, first of all. And that would be in time for the Senate elections, by the way, getting these people off the rolls. That would be super valuable right away, because you see how close the Senate was in the, in the first go round. And so, uh Again, I think that it's, it's important to recognize that, that a well-predicated lawsuit is worthwhile here, uh, regardless of, of your political opinions about the outcome of the election. I mean, everybody should be on board with if voter fraud and voter irregularity are shown, the state doing its job. Why, why do you think it is? You know, obviously, you know, there have been a lot of conspiracy theories that have been put out there. I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist and, and don't tend to believe in them uh, about you know, Brian Kemp and Raffensperger, the uh, Georgia Secretary of State, you know, being uh, you know, somehow... You know, bought and paid for. I, I don't tend to believe that stuff. What do you think is the motivation here? Is it just that they're defensive of the Georgia legal system? Have they not been shown the evidence? What, what do you think is the holdup here? I don't, you don't need to go as far as to say there's a conspiracy or something, you know, an international payoff or something like that. Really, it might be as simple as they are politicians just like the people in D.C. who, when they fall under pressure from people like Stacey Abrams and the Democrat Party, capitulate in a settlement agreement earlier in the year that loosen the standards for absentee ballots, which is where most of the fraud is, and now they have to own what happened. They, they don't want to have to own that Georgian's votes, the Georgian election might have been stolen under their watch. I think it's as simple as that. They don't want to take accountability for their actions or inaction. And so final, final question for you, Jackie Deason. She is, of course, the former counsel to the chairman of the U.S. House Subcommittee on the Constitution, and she's a senior fellow at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Uh, so final question. Now, there's been a lot of talk uh, in Republican circles about Republicans boycotting the Senate elections in January. I, I cannot think of something possibly more counterproductive. I uh, just wanted to get your opinion uh, on that piece of inanity. 
Nothing could be worse than the Republicans stay home. That guarantees a win for the Democrats for the two Senate races. I have no idea why anyone would recommend that step. Even though it's true, there are irregularities. This is a loosey-goosey process. You do have a Secretary of State who's not doing his job, in my opinion. And I think we've proved that. I understand. But you don't protest that by throwing away the U.S. Senate. You, you achieve nothing. So please, Georgians, show up to vote. Show up to vote. Despite the imperfections, you know, we have to show up and fight for that Senate. No compromises. Jackie, thanks again for joining me. If you want to hear more from Jackie Deason, check out her show, The Jackie Daly Show. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you, Ben. Let's jump into an interview I had with James O'Keefe where he discussed how he infiltrated CNN's editorial meetings for two months. It was a great conversation. Enjoy. Joining us on the line is James O'Keefe, founder and president of Project Veritas. On Tuesday morning, he live-streamed the president of CNN, Jeff Zucker's 9 a.m. editorial call, and he says that he has been recording for months these CNN internal calls, and they're going to start releasing clips from the calls today at 7 p.m. Well, James, thanks for joining the show. Hey, thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on. So first of all, I'm not going to ask how you got access to the calls. I assume you have somebody inside the inside the game over at CNN. Obviously, Jeff Zucker seemed uh, somewhat taken aback when you started talking to him on the conference call. And now CNN is threatening legal action against you. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, the legal action, I mean, it's ridiculous. And uh, I think Jeff's just mad and embarrassed, uh, you know, to be threatening me with arrest for reporting on the phone call. But yeah, Ben, we have uh, insider sources inside the organization. And that's what it's the paragon of investigative reporting to have that sort of thing. So it's really ironic for CNN to be threatening me. But definitely, Jeff was shocked to hear me tell him that we've been recording the calls for two months. And uh, we've been we've been just releasing those clips last night. We're going to continue to release them day by day. So let's go through some of the clips that, that you've been releasing. Uh, what were the clips that you released last night for people who missed it? So there was a clip of um, of a couple different uh, with there was Jeff Zucker himself talking about the need to not normalize the president to sort of lean into certain things and not cover others. Uh, there's a clip where they're talking about how the 9-11, the transition, and they're sort of uh, saying the transition is going to affect national security. Uh, they're talking about Tucker Carlson being a white supremacist. That's the general counsel of, of CNN saying that Fox News is the white supremacist hour. And generally, there's this ethos of, of Jeff Zucker, the president of CNN, which is unusual for a media CEO, a media a conglomerate CEO, to be directing the narrative, to be telling his reporters what to cover and what not to cover. And as the, you know, the president of my own organization featuring journalists, they kind of tell me what the story is. I don't really direct them in that particular way. So you sort of see how the sausage is made on these first few clips there at CNN. Yeah, it is pretty incredible that CNN is still considered an objective news source by so many people when it is very obvious that the editorial take is being driven by, by the top. I mean, there have been rumors that Jeff Zucker is on his way out. Do you think this is going to contribute in any way to uh, Jeff Zucker retiring from CNN, given oh, it's pretty I humiliating. I do. I, I, I say that because of the reactions from CNN. They, they have been, I've been doing CNN exposés for years, and this is the first time they've really reacted to it. I mean, CNN corporate communications has put out a couple statements and they, he actually on the, if you watch the video of me live streaming, they, they were so taken aback. Uh, and it's sort of like the psychological aspect too. Now, I, I believe that they should be transparent. I don't think they should be ashamed of anything they're saying right there uh, on those calls. Um, but I think that they're shaking in their boots. And just the fact that we have, you know, hundreds of hours of recordings and we're going to release them a little bit at a time, I, akin to a December advent calendar day by day, 
I think that's just psychologically traumatizing to Jeff Zucker. So I'm, I'm not asking for you to uh, sort of blow up your, your release schedule, but what is the uh, kind of general tenor of some of the material that you're looking to release in upcoming days? You know, there's something coming out today about like Hunter Biden and Zucker's talking about that and, and what to cover, what not to cover. Um, I, I think a lot of this stuff, Ben, is not going to, I don't know if it'll shock people because the chirons on CNN are already so shocking. I, I don't think people are going to go, whoa. But I do think it it gives an insight. It, it, it kind of confirms suspicions about how the sausage is made, how how the organization manufactures consent, to quote Noam Chomsky, how they how they how they kind of tell people what the narrative is and what the story is. And that's not journalism, in my opinion. So I think it's important work. And I hopefully hopefully it draws out more whistleblowers inside these companies to come out like the person who came to me inside CNN. So you've had a wide variety of whistleblowers at a wide variety of these media companies. Uh, and uh, has there been more of an increase in that, given the fact that these companies have become so overtly political as, as in recent years? I mean, they're always political, but they used to at least try to hide it. Yeah, the whistleblowers is now our new bread and butter at Veritas. We used to, we, we still do undercover work, but undercover work's about access. So you, people have to be incredibly brave, almost self-sacrificial to do this. They have to basically jump on a grenade in most cases. We saw with the postal workers, with the election and you know the ballots, but uh, Google, Facebook, Twitter, CNN, New York Times, there are people inside these institutions that are so uh, you know, betrayed by by what the oath they thought they were taking when they joined those networks. And there are even a few people who reached out to me off the record to tell me that and to and to kind of praise what we're doing. But it's like the, you know, the Soviet Union, they can't they can't ever, ever say that to anyone or even publicly. James O'Keefe, founder and president of Project Veritas. Obviously, every time you drop a tape, uh, the media immediately respond by suggesting that you are selectively editing and that you're a con artist. This goes all the way back to uh, Acorn. Uh, back in our right. salad days when we were both uh, working with Andrew Breitbart. Uh, so how do you respond to the allegations that uh, all of this is basically just you taking things out of context and manufacturing narratives? Well, I would say, you know, name the edit, Ben. You know, when, when we, you and I worked together 11 years ago, you know, Jerry Brown was attacking me because the Acorn people didn't break the law. But that's not that. Then they then they do it a non sequitur and say, well, I edited the tapes. Well, name the specific edit. Name the specific thing that we got wrong. Now, I will say I did have to pr publish a correction, a very rare correction in this story, because I couldn't I couldn't figure out the name of the people speaking. The person that did, in fact, brand uh, Tucker Carlson as a white supremacist was CNN's general counsel. I, I had mislabeled him because I couldn't I couldn't identify him. But that even makes it worse that the general counsel of, of the organization is saying that. But no, we have they can never actually name an edit. All journalism is edited selectively. So words are arranged into sentences and in articles on newsprint. But video transfixes in a way that words do not. And I think and I think in this climate, you ha we have to have video uh, to to make our to illustrate our point. Otherwise, they're just going to call us liars if we if we use hearsay or or secondhand sources. So, James, what do you think is the proper response of conservatives to the confirmation, obviously, of the overwhelming bias, not only in the media, but also of social media? You've had whistleblowers from various social media companies. Uh, it has now become perfectly obvious that social media companies are militarizing on behalf of Democratic narratives, as they did in the Hunter Biden story to literally shut that thing down two weeks out from the election. President Trump over the past 48 hours has suggested that he might actually veto a defense authorization bill unless there is some sort of massive change to Section 230. What do you think would be a good solution to the overwhelming tsunami of uh, propaganda put forth by one side of the political aisle here? Well, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very biased towards, towards my own mission here, but generally I would say expose them. 
You know, they, they, you have to what, what they fear more than anything else is being exposed. They're masters of psychological projection. They accuse other people of doing the very things that they do. The New York Times did that to me when they after they attacked me after the Minnesota story saying I use anonymous sources. That's rich. We always show people's lips moving and you can hear their voices. But, Ben, we need to expose them. We need to. And I think there's a psychological issue where a lot of some people even in the conservative movement, uh, you know, they they drink from that poison chalice. They want to be liked by the New York Times. They don't want to be hated. And by the way, being hated by these people is not easy. Being viciously and savagely defamed and attacked constantly is not an easy thing to endure, and you don't escape unscathed. So I think there's almost like a psychological thing that conservatives have to do where they're not afraid to be defamed and attacked unfairly by these organizations. And that's what you have to endure if you want to accomplish the mission, the stated mission of revealing their bias, their malfeasance, uh, their manufacturing consent. You have to be willing to be viciously attacked. Not fun, but uh, I think a worthwhile cause. I'm James O'Keefe, founder and president of Project Veritas. If you want to help them out, head on over to Project Veritas online. They do accept donations as far as I'm aware. James, really appreciate the time and uh, thanks for the insight. Thanks, Ben. Next up, we're going to play you an excerpt from The Ben Shapiro Show, where we discussed Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's ridiculously expensive sweatshirts to decry capitalism. Capitalism always wins. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, she is uh, out to make a quick buck off of her sloganeering nonsense. So one of the great things about capitalism is that socialists love making money off of capitalism. Everybody loves making money off of capitalism. So Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez started pitching her new line of gear. Now, she's a congressperson. Yeah, like we here at Daily Wire, we sell gear too. For example, we have a new sweatshirt. We have a new sweatshirt that we are going to discuss in just one second at Daily Wire. But that's because that's what we do for a living. And Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez has her own woke store. So a couple of examples from the woke store for Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. So she has a sweatshirt. The sweatshirt says, tax the rich upon it. Okay, and this, this sweatshirt, tax the rich with a little AOC slogan over there. I mean, this is this is a great buy for you, okay? It's available at the Alexander Ocasio-Cortez store, a lady who hates capitalism and says it's exploitative and evil. It is made in the United States. It is union printed. It is 100% cotton. It is a gender neutral fit. It says tax the rich. It is $58, $58. I mean, what a deal. So you can demonstrate how much you hate capitalism by spending $58 on a sweatshirt. Tax the rich. The only person who can afford this is somebody who's rich. Can you just imagine a bunch of poor people who just spent like half their daily salary minimum on, on a tax the rich sweatshirt to pitch AOC's brand of bullcrap? It's amazing. Like, good for her. Seriously, anybody can make it in America. It's pretty fantastic. Okay, and um, I, I did offer an alternative to the tax the rich sweatshirt, by the way. We decided not to go with it. We, we went with a different sweatshirt here at Daily Wire. Um, the, the one that I suggested in response to tax the rich, uh, tax the rich was um, leave me the f- alone. But we decided not to go with that one here at Daily Wire. Instead, we went with our response, which is cheaper than AOC's garbage sweatshirt. It says insert woke slogan. Because, I mean, we'll charge you less for that. And that way it serves all your purposes, right? You can do all the same things that Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez wants you to do, right? You can signal your support for a bunch of, for a basket of crappy policies. It is also 100% cotton. It is also made in the United States. It is also a gender neutral fit. And it's cheaper than AOC's socialism sweatshirt because it turns out that capitalism is always better than socialism. Free markets drive down the price and increase the quality. Tax the rich is not as good. It's not as useful as a slogan that says insert woke slogan because see ours, it's appropriate for any occasion. 
have this insert woke slogan sweatshirt. And then if it's Black Lives Matter today, it doesn't matter. You don't have to change your sweatshirt. Right? It just counts. If it says tax the rich today, it doesn't matter. You can still wear the insert woke slogan sweatshirt and you are good to go. Okay, but I just love the fact that Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, critic of the evils of capitalism, is selling on her website a $58 sweatshirt that says, insert, uh, that says tax the rich. Spectacular, spectacular stuff. Okay, but that was not, that, that's not the only stuff that, that AOC is selling on her website. She is also selling a t-shirt. It is a, a t-shirt of herself. It is an imitation of a painting called the green, called Wanderer Above a Sea of Fog. This is a very influential romantic era painting in which it showed originally a man standing on a rock looking over a sea of fog. And the basic idea was that enlightenment ideals could allow man to scale the heights and then survey the vistas. So Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, being her own biggest fan, has now commissioned a painting of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez standing on that same rock, looking out over a beautiful vista like the cover of the Pocahontas VHS. And above it, it says, The Green New Deal. That one will only cost you $27. So you can love AOC nearly as much as AOC loves AOC for just $27. Okay, also, she has put out a great t-shirt. It says, Student Debt, but it's crossed out. That's all the t-shirt is. First of all, you could get this for like seven bucks on Amazon. Let's be real about that. This is like the cheapest t-shirt in history to produce. It's one color. It doesn't have multicolors on it. Any case, it's a student debt, but it's crossed out with a black line. So instead of paying back your student debt, instead of taking that $27 and paying down your debt and being a responsible person since you voluntarily took out the debt in the first place, instead, you could give AOC's campaign $27 to promote her bullcrap and never pay back your student loan debt. Sounds awesome. Okay, but that's not even the most expensive item in the AOC market. Okay, the most expensive item is this extraordinary sweatshirt from Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Just a wonderful sweatshirt. Social, economic, and racial justice. Okay, those are just words. Thank you for that. Social, economic, and racial justice. AOC. Okay, now, um, all all it will cost you to demonstrate how virtuous you are by wearing a sweatshirt that says social, economic, and racial justice, all it will take you is a $65. Nothing says economic justice and social justice like spending $65 on a sweatshirt. Nothing. That is stellar, stellar stuff. The entitlement mentality of the very critics of capitalism who then use capitalism in order to make bucks is pretty, it's pretty spectacular stuff. And the self-pitying nature of all of this is also pretty spectacular. AOC sees herself as this messianic figure inside the Democratic Party. She's going to push for hope and change in Barack Obama true fashion. But she also really pities herself a lot. So last night, she tweeted out, the thing conservative senators don't seem to understand is I've actually had a physically difficult working class job without good health care most of my adult life. I bring that work ethic to Congress and my community. They sit around on leather chairs all day. Yeah, she had a tough guys because she was a waitress. Okay, so my dad worked in a restaurant for hmm, 20 years, 20 years. And most of the people he was friends with were waiters and waitresses. That is, in fact, a difficult job. And guess what? A huge number of Republicans did not start off as senators. Actually, you know who has been sitting in a leather chair all day since 1973? Joe Biden. Joe Biden was elected to Senate in 1973. So she might want to direct her ire elsewhere. Also, quick note on AOC. You got to love the political incoherence of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez calling for Medicare for all. She says she didn't have health care, right? That she's had a physically difficult working class job without good health care most of her adult life. Okay, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, is thir- she's 31 years old. She's 31, right? That means that in 2010, 
I think her birthday, I, I looked this up yesterday for purposes of the suite. Uh, I believe that her birthday was, is sometime in October, I think. So she is 31 years old. That means that she was 20 when Obamacare passed. I thought Obamacare was going to solve all of our problems, guys. I thought Obamacare was like the greatest thing to ever happen to healthcare. She has been her entire adult life living under the auspices of Obamacare. So what is she talking about? She doesn't have healthcare. I thought Obamacare solved all the problems. Now, subtle slap at Barack Obama there, AOC. Okay, in any case, is this coalition capable of being held together? I don't think so. I think they've got some real problems inside that coalition. Thanks for tuning in to this special episode of The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll be back on air on January 4th. In the meantime, head on over to dailywire.com slash subscribe to not only listen, but also to watch every single episode of The Ben Shapiro Show we had in 2020. See you next year. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 